Good morning. How are we today? Doing all right? Yeah. I wish summertime lasted a little longer, but I love these not too hot but not too cool days. It's very good. Uh, We have been talking in recent weeks about um, things of the Spirit, really, is what it seems to the theme that is evolving out of, you know, from week to week. Uh, sometimes we have series planned where we lay out everything in the weeks ahead of the time and, and uh, really feel like God leads us in that. And then there's other times where we just kind of go week to week and see what comes out. And, and God really has been taking us into things of the Spirit, kind of starting with uh, we had talked about freedom from spiritual oppression. And uh, we're talking about freedom in general, but recognizing that we, we have an oppressor and there are oppressing things going on in our lives and, and that take place in a supernatural kind of way. And last week we talked about the supernatural realm a little bit, and we're going to continue with some of that this week. But before we do, I'm just going to take a few moments here and pray. Father, we, <clears throat> Lord, we open our hearts to you. We open our hearts to receive from your word. Lord, we open our hearts for your spirit to work on us. Lord, to, for this word to go into us, this scripture, and to do the work that you send it to do. Lord, the, the surgery that may be done or the breaking off of chains that maybe needs to be done or the victory that people need or the comfort or the peace, all the things that come with, with your word and with your spirit. Lord, I pray that they would be at work in every heart in this room today. Father, we don't gather together just to be entertained or we want to we see victory. We want to see progress. We want to see development in all of our lives or that we would be growing mature and growing, growing closer to you. So lead us in that today through your word. I pray that you would lead me as well in, in talking and God just guide me in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking about things involving the spirit, you know, that that uh, there is a spiritual realm outside of the flesh, and we're going to continue to talk about maybe different angles of it in the weeks to come, not so conventionally maybe, but uh, I want to take a look at a couple of scriptures to begin with. Um, we're, we're, we're in a war, but what, what war? What is this war? What is it about? What does it involve? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, and then Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We are at war. <laughs> and the Bible often uses warfare to describe this situation. What is this war all about? I think um, it's worth asking the question, if it's a war and there's two sides and they're at conflict, what is this all about? Where did it begin? How did this happen? How did we find ourselves in a conflict? I would rather have some peace than conflict. Where did this come from? It begins with these words, the very first words that we hear from our enemy in the Bible. The very first thing Satan had to say to mankind, as far as we can tell, and it was these words. Did God 
actually say. We talked about this scripture in Genesis chapter 3 recently, early on in the year, when we were talking about the authority of the Word of God, the scripture, the power of God's Word, how important it is for our lives, the authority it carries. And right in the very beginning, one of the very first stories in the Bible, the conflict begins with these words, did God say? Someone came along that tried to undermine the authority and the word of God. Who was it? Satan himself. And he comes to Eve in the garden and he questions God. He questions what God said. Did God actually say? So in the, we see right away, what is he doing? He's undermining the authority and the word of God. And then he tempts Eve. And he begins to appeal to something in her. Did God really say you shouldn't eat the fruit of this tree? Uh, I, I don't think you'll die. I'm paraphrasing. That's my paraphrase. You won't die. You're going to be more like God if you do this. And some people, you know, some people believe that he was appealing to pride, which is his ultimate downfall as well. Satan rebelled against God, and many people believe that was based on his pride, that he elevated himself. He wanted to be like God. And he appeals to the same thing in Eve, maybe perhaps trying to get her to, you be God, you decide, you be more like God. And then some, some would argue also that perhaps he was appealing to her desire to uh, please God. And sometimes we do that too. He's appealing to something, he's tempting. What does it mean to be tempted? Maybe uh, this afternoon someone will put, two pounds of ice cream in front of you, and you'll go, don't tempt me. What, what, what's happening there? There's a, there's a desire stirred. Something where I, I want something, even if I know it's not good for me, and it wouldn't be right for me to do, but then temptation comes. He's a tempter. And it begins with this deception in the Garden of Eden. It began, it began in the beginning, Right In the beginning, this is what's going on, and it sets the stage for all of history. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God, and they did. The consequences of that moment are astounding and resound through the ages, and we talk about this frequently. Satan succeeded in including mankind in his rebellion against God. He enticed mankind to join him by disobeying God. And the war is the same today. There is an enticement and a pressure to disobey God even today through temptation and through deception and ultimately through sin. In the Garden of Eden, mankind was in this close relational situation with God and a wedge came and broke that relationship. We all chop wood around here because we're Montanans, right? You know what a split and mall is or a split and wedge? Some of you guys from not around here are like, what are you talking about? Well, we, you take that wedge and you drive it into the log, the piece of firewood, and you pound it and pound it until it completely splits. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan succeeded in driving a wedge into the relationship between the created and the creator, and he used sin to do it. What is sin? Sin is the wedge between man and God. Sin is anything anti-God. 
You know, we talk, the Bible talks about the end times, the, the anti-Christ, and there's a lot of information about, uh, about that, and people have a lot of theories about it, but it's, it's anti-God, things that are not God. God is the standard. He is truth. He is love. He is all that is good in the universe. Everything we understand about what is good, we know because it's from God. God is good. God is love. He's the gold standard. You know what the gold standard is? It's like the, well, literally with money, we used to be on a gold standard where every dollar, paper dollar you had, there was a dollar worth of gold somewhere that represented the value of that dollar. There was a standard somewhere bearing up the value of our currency. That doesn't, doesn't work that anymore. They just print it now, you know. It comes out on paper. It's amazing. God is the standard. Anything that is true, anything that is right, anything is good is only defined that way because of who God is. And so we look to God as the standard for all things that are good and right in the world. Sin is anything outside of that. Anything that contradicts the nature of God himself is sin. So we can't just print off a list of sins, although God did start out by illustrating what his character is and is not through things like the Ten Commandments. You could start making a list of sin and you could write it till the end of your lifetime coming up with stuff. But at the end of the day, what it boils down to, anything outside of the alignment with God and his character and his nature. It's why sin is to miss the mark, right? We talk about this frequently. You aim at something and you try and hit it, but if you're off the mark, that's the definition of sin, to miss the mark, and the mark being God, the standard being God. And so anything we do that is out of alignment with God is sin. This is what this war is about. It's for your life and for your relationship with God. When that wedge of sin came and divided mankind, death came as well. When, the Bible says when, the, when sin is full grown, it produces death. And we found that to be true in our humanity, haven't we? And so we have an enemy who is wanting to divide you from your relationship with God and bring death. Not just literal death in this body, which is definitely something we're all going to have to deal with because of sin. You know, you wouldn't die if it weren't for sin. Death would not be a part of our equation if we were in alignment with God. And in fact, we know that in eternity that's the case because of what Jesus has done. But that is the rest of the story eventually. God himself is the defining entity of all that is right and good. He's the baseline by which all things are judged. God and his nature. We talked last week about the enlightenment, the period of time, uh, you know, in the 16th and 17th, 18th, 18th centuries, where uh, we started to gain a lot of information and knowledge scientifically. It was very helpful in many ways, very good, but it also began to lay the groundwork for things like uh, an agnostic view of God, or even atheism, and things like that. And, and one of the things that has come about is things like relativism, where uh, no one can decide truth for everybody else. Everything is relative to me. It's relative to my culture. It's relative to my experience. And so whatever's true for me might not be true for you. But if God is the absolute, there is an absolute truth. And it goes beyond our experiences or even our understanding. God is the foundation for truth. We saw that we've seen the development of things like humanism, secularism, things that philosophies that separate God 
from our day-to-day lives and our thinking. And I mentioned this last week, and I would say it again. If you really take the time to think about it, you will notice how much this, these philosophical background things are actually in your thinking. And the way you even decide your theology and who God is and what's going on, you will find threads of relativism and things like that, humanism, secularism, all involved in those things. Uh, because they, they, we grow up in it and we're totally saturated in it and we don't even realize it's part of our process, but it is. I was looking at an article recently uh, a professor at Harvard, and I, it escapes me, I forgot to get the reference for it. He had written a book about it, and he was talking about the relationship between religion and law, and one of the things he's very concerned about, uh, we know that out of our, a lot of our universities, this is not godly information, and they're not God-focused in their studies or anything, but he is really making this argument that without religion, we will eventually not be able to have law, because there is no absolutes. Everything becomes relative. And, and, I mean, we see that even now we're seeing inklings of turmoil in, in the way we do law because there is no way to decide what right and wrong are when there isn't some sort of moral fundamental thing like God laying the foundation for that. And if you really, it's a little bit of a philosophical kind of thing you got to ponder for a bit, but it can take you right there and you go, yeah, how are we going to decide what right and wrong is when no one can agree that there is a standard for it? And so... You have some interesting things that develop out of that. We do not define the standard God does. God will be the judge. He will be the standard, period. Anything that breaks alignment with that or is outside of that is, by definition, sin. Have you ever dislocated a joint? Anybody? <laughs> Any Ever dislocate something? My wife thinks my head's dislocated sometimes. <clears throat> um, I, my shoulders used to dislocate real easily, and particularly playing sports. And the first time it happened, I mean, I thought I was going to die. It hurt so bad. It went out of joint backwards, and it was just stuck. My arm was stuck. And that's gross. If you ever see that, you know, on somebody? It's just, it looks wrong. And guess how much movement you have when your shoulder's dislocated out the back? If I hold it like this very long, it might actually go. It'll be really entertaining, though. It'd make for a good message, wouldn't it? If I just. Anyway. When something is out of alignment or out of joint, it doesn't do what it's supposed to. It doesn't work like it's supposed to. It doesn't serve the function that it's supposed to. You can't do anything. Those of you that have back issues, when that thing's out of alignment, everything stops. Nothing quite works right. Even the chiropractor will tell you, your organs don't work right when your back's choking on those nerves and stuff like that, right? All my chiropractor friends are like, yes, go preach it. We, this is what sin is. It's a dislocation. It's something that has come along and dislocated you from God in whatever area. And this is where we start to get into the conversation about strongholds in our lives. When we, when we choose Sometimes even deliberately and stubbornly, we, we choose to dislocate ourselves from God, and that part of our life doesn't work anymore. When my shoulder went back into joint, it still hurt. Sin still hurts. After. There are natural consequences to sin, right? Sometimes we hurt ourselves through sin or we hurt others, and it takes a long time to heal. I had to exercise that shoulder. I had to do physical therapy. 
I had to strengthen all the muscles around it. It's just like that with sin in our lives. When we have a weakness somewhere and we cave into sin, it does a lot of damage. And when we repent and God forgives us, that doesn't mean it just automatically is instantly all healed. We have to guard that spot. We have to protect that sore area and do things to get it back into order and healed up so that the weakness isn't there anymore. Very important part about sin. It's dysfunction. It's without right order. So man finds himself at war. On one side, you've got God. You've got his angels. You've got all the people that hold him in authority and look to him as the standard and the definition of what is good and right. You've got the other side, which seeks to undermine God's authority, to bring deception to bring temptation, to try and alienate creation from its creator, to, to bring destruction and death. You have these two opposing sides that are at war. This is not metaphorical. It is real. It is real. It's not just to illustrate the human condition. It's actually taking place. So if we've been lulled into sleep, not thinking that's existing and, and that we don't really have an enemy that's trying to ruin our lives and we don't really have a God who loves us, we've already lost. We've already given way to, to his rebellion. We don't know a lot, but we know that our enemy is bent on our destruction. And I don't know about you, if I knew that one of you was bent on my destruction... Somebody out there in the world was wanted to kill me. I would take some measures to make sure that I don't get killed, right? I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to try and be wise about the things that I do in order to be safe. If I really believe that I have an enemy that wants to divide me from God and separate me from my relationship with him, I'm going to pay attention to that situation and realize where my weaknesses are, where I have the propensity to sin, where the enemy is trying to get a hold of me somehow on the inside and begin to wreak havoc in my life. See, when we, we're kind of messed up in this war because we, you know, I'm assuming I speak for all of us, we say we want to be on God's side. He wins. I mean, who doesn't want to be with the guy that wins, right? But he loves us and he forgives us and we want that healthy lifestyle. But we have these weaknesses that sort of keep us on the rebellious side as well. But what we need to realize is that when we entertain sin, when we hide sin, when we cave into sin and we let it continue to exist, we've kind of snuck over to the other side for a little bit and let him get a hold of us. We have fueled his side of the war. We have fueled his rebellion. And if I could be so dramatic as to say, it's almost like being a spy. You're sort of feeding the enemy when you entertain sin. Because you are, what you're actually doing is you're giving authority to someone other than God. To a force other than God. When you're giving yourself to the enemy's tactics. What is he trying to do? He's trying to... Uh, st steal and kill, destroy, to, to drive that wedge in the relationship. And everywhere we cave into sin, we are giving him opportunity to bring destruction in our lives. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter should know this better than anyone. Remember what Jesus said to him. We looked at the scripture last week. Satan has asked. 
to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Right? Peter himself knew this very, very well, that he had an actual enemy who was actually bent on his destruction. And so he says these words to us, be sober-minded and watchful, which is actually contrary to a message that, that I hear frequently, it seems like, in the church, where it's like, we, don't talk about sin, don't talk about the devil, don't talk about hell. This relativism is starting to push all that stuff out of the church. And don't do that. But that's, that would be to uh, ignore Peter's advice to us. No, be watchful. Do not pretend like it's not there. Do not be ignorant of it. But watch for the tactics and the strategies and the schemes of our enemy who tries to bring destruction in our lives. It's a war of deception and it's a war of accusation. That's what kind of a gross war this is. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. For those of you who don't know what Revelation is, it's the last book in the Bible. And it's, uh, it's John having a vision, and much of it concerns future things. And there's a lot of debate about what it actually means. It's pretty interesting and fun to read. But uh, even this particular passage, some believe hasn't happened yet. Some believe already has. Uh, but that's not really the point I'm going to make with it today. Then a war broke out in heaven. War broke out in heaven. Wow. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough, and no longer was any place in heaven for him and his angels. Wow. That's just some interesting things to think about there. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. The deceiver. Here we go. The deception. That's his tactic. That's who he is. It's his character, his nature. The deceiver. The father of lies. Of the whole world. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Reminds me of Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does this tell us? We have a deceiver who is opposed to God. And deception being a key thing. And then it goes on and it says, I, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. It's interesting when you think about the tactic of our enemy is he wants to deceive us into screwing up, into being rebellious, into getting out of alignment or disjointed from God, and then he turns around and accuses us. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I'm gonna, I, you should do this. You should do this. Oh, you just did that, you idiot. That's exactly what it's like over and over and over. And if you struggled with sin in any way and, and, and felt the pain of not wanting to be sinful, which probably all of us have, we know that story. Temptation, temptation, temptation. Then you cave into it, and it's like accusation, 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 accusation. And yet, what does the Scripture teach us? That he, 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 he was thrown from heaven, that he is defeated, that the authority of the Christ has come. Through the sacrifice that he made on the cross, we have the forgiveness of sins. And that's why we have that helmet, that helmet called what? 
Salvation, yes, one of the things we go into battle with, knowing full well that our salvation has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so we're protected from the accusation. Even though we've, we, we, there's plenty to accuse us for, we also know that our faith in Christ covers those sins, forgives those sins. There is a true and false. And in his deceptive tactics, our enemy is seeking to disjoin us from the truth. God is the truth. He is the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. For Satan, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I think I'm having a hard time maybe putting some vocabulary to this, but um, there's a lot of things that go on in the world that are shrouded in the idea that they are good. It's good for society if. It's good for the country if. It's good for... There, there are things that are disguised as good, but they're, but they're anti-God. And they creep into the church. We, we, when you think about sin, okay, if you go to some place, um, I was trying to think of a couple of examples, but both in the, in the Philippines and in Romania, bribery was a big thing. And uh, around here, that's pretty, I don't know, I don't, I don't run into it around here very often. I'm sure it must happen in certain places, but... Uh, bribery is sort of an incomprehensible thing to me that you could get away with being that dishonest about money. And yet it's part of everyday life in those societies. You get pulled over, you buy off the police officer instead of getting a ticket. You want your imports from the United States to be accepted uh, for the church project, you got to buy off the agent. You know, things like that go on and they're just common, integrated into society to the degree that they pretty much just turn a blind eye to them. Right? And so something like that might be a little unusual foreign for us, but we have our own things right here in our society. Things that have crept in and now are considered acceptable that are not acceptable to God. I think of the situation with sexual morality in our country. Uh, the, situa- the scripture is very clear that sexual immorality is sin. And in fact, it goes on to define sexual immorality saying you know, that, that it's different than other sin because when a man sins sexually, he actually sins against himself, man or woman. So sexual sin is a very big deal, but in our society, it's now commonplace and accepted and actually even expected before the covenant of marriage and those kinds of things. That is totally anti-God. There's nothing, nothing, nothing godly about that. The scripture is very clear. And yet, we're, I mean, I run into this all the time. I'm so inundated in that and wore out by that that sometimes you just start tolerating it. Because you just expect it to be people's way of life. And yet, we can't be lulled to sleep by sin. Because when, that, when we give authority to those things, we have now given a stronghold to our enemy, a place for him to accuse, a place for him to deceive, a place for him to still have authority in our lives. So as followers of God, we need to recognize those tactics that are at work both in our culture, in our church, and in our own individual lives. A place where the enemy is looking to get a hold of us somehow. And how does he do it? We give authority by sin. We give access by sin. So if sin is the wedge between us and God that separates us relationally from him, what should our relationship with sin be? We should hate it like God hates it. We should flee from it 
like God does. There's another thing that has grown in the church is because of God's grace, we should just be able to sin knowing that he will forgive me. And we're probably all guilty of this a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and fill in the blank because I know God will forgive me. But to take advantage of the grace of God is, that's not cool. That's unloving towards God. It's disrespectful towards the price that he paid. We should resist sin. We should combat it. We shouldn't allow it to be a part of our lives and then use the grace of God as our get-out-of-jail-free card all the time. If, I don't think that will work in the end. That isn't, how, that isn't what grace is all about. Grace isn't the freedom to sin. Grace is the forgiveness for the sin. It's a big deal. And it's something that's creeped into the church. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to talk about consequences for our actions. We don't want to talk about the strongholds in our life. And I think all of that is a tactic of our enemy to lull us to sleep on the power of sin when it has access to us in our lives by tolerating. If you read the Revelation, the first letters to the churches, in the first part of Revelation, the letters to the churches, full of stuff like, you're doing this well, you're doing this well, but you've forgotten your first love, you're tolerating this sinful situation, these things. Don't tolerate sin. Don't tolerate it. Now, there is the grace because we all stumble, right? We all screw up. We have to have grace for each other. We have to have grace for ourselves. We have to seek that forgiveness. But that's different than blatant tolerance of sin. They're different. We want to, we're going to be fighting with sin the rest of our lives, resisting it, overcoming it, asking God for forgiveness. And we, we're always going to be a part of that journey. But what we want to be careful of is we don't get to this point where we go, go ahead, you can have that part of my life. I'll give you authority, Satan, in that part of my life. We don't want to end up in that situation, and we need to watch that of ourselves. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Sometimes you got to put yourself, just try and imagine these things being said to you. Paul stood right here, and he said, J.R., I'm telling you this, and I insist on it. And Paul was an insistent person that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He's not talking about a racism issue here. He's talking about the Gentiles being those who don't believe in God, who don't honor God. He's saying, I'm insisting, do not live this way anymore. I want to read a little bit more of Ephesians 4 here to you real quick. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. We do that. We just get so used to sin, we just tolerate it, we become callous to how egregious it actually is to God. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And he goes on all through the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, and he's listing off these things. Don't be an imitator of God. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't be covetous. Put away falsehood. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give him opportunity. The NIV says don't give him a foothold. We're talking about sword fighting last week. And if, you know, if, if I come in with this big old wild swing like this and I've exposed myself, I've given opportunity to be attacked. Or like some of the tactic is, you know, you block the swing of your enemy and then you reach with your hand and grab him by the throat, right? And that's what the enemy seeks to do. 
We don't want to get we don't want to expose ourselves or give him the opportunity to get in there and get a hold of us in any way. And there's only the only what the only thing that comes through is sin, which is anything anti-God, out of alignment with God. We don't want to be out of alignment with God because we've given him a place to put his foot and hold his ground and hang on to us in that area. And it grows and it grows and eventually brings death to us. It's very unhealthy. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You can grieve God. Your sin grieves God. It grieves him because it breaks our relationship with him. Verse 6 of chapter 5, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. You know, the sons of disobedience, it says there. For these reasons, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17, look carefully how you walk, not as wise, but as wise. Not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's this strong provoking. Think about how you're living. Don't walk foolishly. It's dangerous, and it brings about destruction in our lives, and it grieves God. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. I think, I think really kind of the heart behind all of this, when I, I just want to motivate us to don't tolerate sin. We need, to, we, need to, we need to confess it. We need to be very vulnerable about it. We need to talk about it. We need to seek forgiveness every day, pretty much. But that's different than tolerating. Don't tolerate sin. Live wisely. So flee the youthful passions. Some translations say the evil desires of youth. <laughs> and pursue. So don't do those things, but do these things. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. Goes on in 2 Timothy 22. I'll, keep, I'll read a little bit more of this so you have some context. It goes into, uh, continues on saying, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Ugh, that is some strong language. Being captured by him to do his will? Is that possible for us? Is there a snare like that? Yes. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. And that's what we're facing. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Key thing here in our warfare. Now, we've talked a lot about sin, but we could, we could study sin till we die. What we need to study is the truth. So that we can deal with sin. If I know what the truth is, I can handle sin. If I know what the real is, when the counterfeit comes, I can tell. How do I, I, I need to submit myself to God. I need his strength. I need his wisdom. I need his character, his nature in order to overcome sin. I can't do it any other way. I am too weak. I'm too broken. I'm too frail. I don't have enough willpower. We, we run into these 
we run into this all the time. You know, people have this ultra willpower. I'm not going to screw up. 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 I'm tough enough. I'm strong-willed enough. I have enough mental strength to do whatever I, uh, whatever I need to do. That, that's humanism. It's not godly. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. We are meant to resist him, and we are meant to draw near to God. This is about restoration of your relationship with God. Pulling that wedge out that you might relate to God, that you might be his loving son or daughter, and he might be your loving father, and and you can enjoy that peaceful relationship with God. He has restored that for us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. When we recognize that we have sinned and we've, we've grieved God, we need to repent of that. We need to grieve ourselves and go, that was not okay. God, I am so sorry. I humble myself. I, I got disjointed from you. Help me heal from that weakness. Help me recover. Help me, because God brings, the power of God brings not just forgiveness, but transformation, new life, new creation, a restoration that is amazing. But if we don't have nothing to be restored from or don't recognize that, what value is there? We need to find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. In our spiritual warfare, in our resistance to sin, we need to find ourselves every day at the feet of Jesus, in relationship with God, absorbing his word, listening to his spirit. That's where we draw what we need to win this war. And it is a war. It's a war. And I'll wrap up with this and Mr. Swanson will pick this up next week. It's the power of salvation. All the, do you feel kind of icky, all the sin talk? I mean, if I kind of got you going, ah. It is heavy because it is the humanity's reality. It's what creation has been subjected to. And we live in it every day, and it's gross. And it's painful, and it's destructive. And so we keep talking about it. I've been talking about it for 40 minutes now. And it's like, ugh. I'm going to be depressed the rest of the day. No. Why? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have the helmet of salvation. We have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Where we, we take on new life. We have the spirit of God inside of us to overcome. There's no condemnation for us. Even though we deserve it and even though we're guilty, we don't have to live in condemnation anymore. We leave that sinful life behind. We leave those sinful habits behind. We embrace new life through Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been talking about the law of sin and death, and we want to be free of that. How are we? Through Christ Jesus, through what he did on the cross. No more condemnation for us. That accuser of the brothers who's been hurled down whose authority has been broken because of what Jesus Christ did, that accusation no longer carries weight in our lives because we are forgiven. We can't then just keep entertaining sin. We don't want to keep fueling that. Would you stand, please? Sin sucks. I guess I could have just said that in the beginning and we could be going to go home, right? No, it's very important for us to wrestle with these things. Lord, we thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for your word that leads us and guides us to you. We don't go hunting for our enemy and, and uh, 
entertaining sin and those kind of things. Lord, we set our eyes on you. You are the author and perfecter. You are the source of life. You're the one who we want to relate to and have relationship with. And so, Father, I pray that your, your spirit would be at work in each one of us this week. Let in these words from your scripture stir in us and produce healthy things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.